You're listening to another episode of The Zag. Eric Sob here. Excited to have a three-person pod, an important one at that. Two of our 2020 NLC LA fellows are here. Michael Deegan McCree and Sean Hanks. We'll catch up with them to talk about something that's been top of mind in the progressive community and in the country at large. They'll explain what that is. Don't want to miss this episode. Stay tuned. All right, Michael, I'll start with you because I really appreciate you bringing this uh, uh, conversation topic and really important one to to the ZAG and to the NLC community at large. Share with folks a little bit about what you want to talk about today. Yeah, Eric, I, I really appreciate it. Um, you know, something that's really been on a lot of progressives' minds uh, these past couple of weeks um, has been the violence against the African-American community, uh, whether it's by uh, our, our citizens or whether it's by those who have been sworn to protect us. Um, I think we're all aware that Ahmad Aubrey, uh, was, you know, lynched in Georgia, uh, about two and a half, three months ago. Uh, and now that we have this, this video proof, a lot of organizations that are either fighting for social justice or criminal justice reform have really come out, uh, in support of him and his family, but also really looking at the the historical point of view when it comes to violence against the African American community, and I thought it was really important uh, that we create a platform uh, for folks, especially within the NLC family, and then um, the country at large, to to have a conversation about how lynchings uh, in the South, in the Midwest, uh, and then violence against the African American community isn't necessarily something of the past, but um, is is really part of the American identity and something that we still need to confront today. Why do you feel lynching is the correct and and, and appropriate word here? You know, um, I, I've actually been asked that a couple of times uh, by various people, uh, and you know, the real reason why I think that lynching is is the correct word to use is because uh, violence against the African American community um, from a racial standpoint uh, was given the definition mob lynching back uh, in the 1870s. Uh, between 1877 and 1950, about 4,400 African American men, women, and children were either hanged, shot, drowned, burned alive, or beaten to death um, by white mobs, um, which by definition was either two people or more. Um, and at times, this was carried out, you know, by our government itself, um, and other times it was carried out on behalf of citizens that felt like um, African Americans did not know their place. And so, I use the definition of lynching because um, when mob lynching was given its definition, uh, mostly during Reconstruction, it it had to do with people putting. African Americans in their place or where they thought they should be, um, and and that's the familiar feeling for me. I, I can only speak for me, um, but that's the feeling that I get uh, when when I witness a video like we've witnessed when it comes to Ahmad Aubrey. And then Sean, I think one of the uh, important ways that NLC has really tried to push itself, especially here in LA is when we build a class, we definitely want a diverse class, and, and we also want to challenge. And I think one of the things I've noticed over the years is that we've challenged the idea of allyship. And when our, our white progressive friends and white people in general say they're allies, 
that only gets you to a certain point. There's a lot more to be said for being an accomplice to trying to undo systems that are uh, unequal and perverting justice and these kind of things too. What kind of conversations have happened in this year's cohort around that concept? Yeah, around allyship in particular, I think for me, it, it really comes down to, to various scales. And I think that that's what's come out in conversations with with other fellows, because we're all working um, at different scales and in different industries, right? Whether it be the state, the national level, whether it be a nonprofit um, or for the public government. And so for me, when I think about allyship or accomplice, uh, being an accomplice rather, we need to think about those scales as well. So what can we do internally yourself, you know, and that might be reflection and education or literally using your body to protest um, or, to, or to be a buffer um, for, for the black community during protests or, or to protect during arrest, things like that. I think it's your own community, you know, thinking about particularly for white people, how we get our own, how we sort of spread our experiences and, and our education that we have received for those who have who've taken part in that reflection. How can we get others that we know um, um, to realize this, uh, that these structures exist, that this is something that's born into us, that, that is part of all of us, whether we part- think we actively partake or not, right? White supremacy is baked into our society. And then last at the organizational level. And to me, that really uh, is how we can contribute to this project of reparations. And so I think funding and resources, of course, one that gets a lot of press, right? How can we sort of redistribute wealth that's been passed down from generation to generation, oftentimes in circumspect ways, um, you know, how that money came to be. But two, how can we use our skills and connections, right? How can you show up and participate in, our partici- in, in, in a cooperative rate? way. You know, it, it means lobbying for change. It might mean contributing to the movement if you have particular, you know, connections that you're able to use or, or things that you can can bring to the table that might help get that message out there or get the message to a new group of people. Um, and so I think it looks in a variety of ways, but really thinking carefully about how we can strategize and work together and be tethered to some sort of social or political project. Um, because I think that's how we use our skills. We use our, our, our resources, our funding um, most usefully to those most affected. And then, Michael, listening to you share that historical context, does that make you even more cynical that change is possible? Is there any hope in that? Because I just feel discouraged knowing that this uh, uh, obviously has gone on since the founding of the country. But, you know, this uh, from Reconstruction on is almost 120, almost 150 years. Um, is there any sense of hope in that? Um, for me, there is a sense of hope. I'm okay. a very glass half full type of person. I believe that there is always an opportunity for us to confront our past. Uh, it's difficult to look at, as you've just um, you know described. It's 150 years plus of of looking at these atrocities and and not much action being taken. Um, but more recently, uh, just this past February, Representative Bobby Rush, um, who represents Illinois' first district, did. Uh, present a piece of legislation, H.R. 35, which is uh, the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act. Um, For those of you who aren't familiar with Emmett Till, uh, he was a a young African-American teenager whose mother sent him from Chicago down to Mississippi to spend time uh, with his family and um, was accused of of whistling at a white woman. And and for that, he was was lynched. Um, And it's it's a pretty gruesome story, so I'm not going to go through those details, but um, his name is being honored with this bill, and it passed um, with flying colors uh, in in the House of Representatives. Um, right now, it sits on uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's desk, and and I hope I hope it's it's taken up. But I think 
time after time when we are able to show as a country, whether it's on the federal level or it's on the local level, that we stand behind a social justice cause, that we want to show that uh, we'd like to deal with with the the demons of our past, uh, something comes up that's more important, um, or at least is shown uh, politically that it's more important. I think uh, that's what makes it really, really hard is that there is not a lot of uh, political weight that can be thrown behind a piece of legislation like this across the entire country, just in certain communities. And that's what makes the process extremely slow. But I do, I do have hope that uh, a bill like this will be passed, um, that it will be placed on a political and policy platform and be recognized that actions like this are not okay, uh, that they will not be accepted, that our lawmakers will not stand for it, and that action will be taken. But something I do want to add, Eric, is you know it's all it's all good and fine if if a bill like the Emmett Till Anti Lynching Act passes and it's signed into law by by a president. But you also have to be aware that a lot of a lot of this violence that takes place happens in small rural communities, whether it be on the coasts or in the south, as as this lynching did. And you have this really, really obvious um, involvement of community along with government, as you did back 100 years ago, 150 years ago. And so it's not just our federal representatives that need to step up. It's also people like our our local sheriff's departments, our local district attorneys, right? Our um, state assembly members and state senators. A lot of these problems exist in really uh, small, close-knit communities, and the actions need to be taken by the local leaders as well. And in, until until those actions take place, I don't see much change happening. Now, the hope that comes for me is that now we have this drop of a dime access through social media and through mass media that will not allow for our representatives to cover things up, right? This this lynching of Ahmad Aubrey was supported across the country and even internationally as soon as this video came out. Um, and the Run With Mod um, campaign was largely supported across the country. And so those are the types of things that, uh, that, that, that give me hope uh, that we, we will be able to make this change. When we come back with Michael and Sean, we'll continue on this incredibly important topic. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Zag. We'll be right back. I was curious when you were talking about some of the order of operations on how you can engage allies to become accomplices. One of the things I was curious about is if you have any thoughts on how you would dismantle some of the systems that lead folks to be uh, so comfortable seeking out violent confrontations. So I'm thinking of like stand your ground laws or gun laws too. How would you ever see states starting to undo some of those things because they are so partisan and they're so politically fraught with things that aren't related to the matter at hand? Yeah, I think that's a great point. Thank you so much for bringing up those laws. Uh, just to give a quick background of the of the stand your ground laws, those are something that 
more often than not, were developed by ALEC, the American Legislative Council, um, which is a conservative group that brings together corporations and politicians. And so many of these standard ground laws were actually model bills, which are essentially plug and play laws, which can be spread throughout the country, throughout localities, municipalities, very quickly. Um, And essentially a politician can just put their name on it bring a draft to council and quickly get it ratified. And so it's really dangerous because these proliferated really quickly. And so I think it's, you know, definitely important the progressive movement realize this and start thinking, as Michael said, locally, how we can start bring uh, uh, combating some of this and repealing some of those laws. So I think first and foremost that that's exactly right. The stand your ground laws have to be a, a, a note of concern because I think this is what allows white men, in particular white folks, to feel empowered to deputize themselves mm-hmm. um, and to take violence into their own, own hands. And you know I think that's just something we don't need in moments of crisis, right? Of course not, is, is more violence. And so thinking critically about what other practices we can equip our community members with to assist in times like these. And to me, my mind goes to restorative justice, right? And so thinking about community control, redistributing power away from the police and away from uh, you know individual citizens to people that we trust, right? To social workers, um, to teachers and things like that. And so how can we reorient it, reorient our sort of vision of what these institutions look like, what policing institutions look like, what homeowners associations look like, because more often than not, we've seen uh, these are the folks that are sort of executing this violence as well, right? So how can we break down these local institutions, still ground things in the local community, and particularly those that are affected, the black community, right? And have them sort of dictate what they need um, to feel safe, number one. And then from white folks, what can we do so that people don't feel as empowered to take the law into their own hands? And for me, I think that's filling that void um, or, or filling that need, I should say, with someone or some people that are specifically trained in moments of crisis that know not to use violence and have other tools um, that are more restorative than that. So does that start as early as, as kindergarten, as early as fifth grade? I'm just trying to think how you would untangle so many of the notions of, of white malehood with um, uh, you know, being independent and, and, and having the opportunity to, to act to protect uh, quote unquote property or, or things like that. I, you know, having worked in schools myself for so long, uh, I would advocate for starting really young, but I'm just trying to wonder how you would start to untangle so many of the nefarious beliefs that uh, a lot of these folks who are deputizing themselves have so that their instinct would be restorative justice. Where do you think that would start? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you brought up a really good point, which is sort of thinking about this issue as two things, right? One being a legislative piece in terms of like, how can we make laws or bring back laws or bring down laws that sort of encourage this behavior? And then two, what's the education piece? And I think that's what you're alluding to here, which is, of course, super, super key when things are as baked in to our society, right? And something that we actively benefit from, whether or not, uh, you know, sort of it's visible to us. And Mm -hmm. so I think you're right. I think starting as early as possible. I have some close friends um, who are grammar school teachers um, or elementary school teachers, I should say. That's my Midwest uh, slang coming (laughs) out there. Uh, And I think you're exactly right. You know, there are, it, it seems simple, but there are children's books that are being read now. 
uh, are written now, excuse me. Um, there are lesson plans out there um, that are really effective, that are that are plug and play as well, right? That make it easy on teachers to have these conversations. And I think the thing we need to realize is these conversations are difficult to have, um, that these, that, that sort of unlearning these behaviors do take a, a long time and they require effort. Um, and so one, being in it for the long haul and, and two, sort of plugging in as many places as we can. So one, you know, being through schools. Uh, two, thinking about ways that coaches, uh, parents and things can have conversations with our families, things like that. Um, and, and just trying to, to get that message out there as much as possible. But it is something that's going to take a long time to, to unlearn. And I think like you're saying, it starts young and it starts with as many people um, it's with small touches, sort of bringing that message to the surface um, is key. Michael, last question. What do you want folks to watch for as this case moves forward? The grand jury will, will convene at some point here in the relatively near future. How do you want to have folks keep this top of mind? And what kind of pressure do you want people to put on different institutions, either in that state or across the country? That's a good question, Eric. You know, I think what I, what I think is most important as this moves forward is not even necessarily taking action steps that directly have to do with this case, although that's extremely important. You know, if you have relatives or friends or colleagues that are in the state of Georgia, have them call in to the district attorney's office, have them call in to their um, county supervisors, have them call in to their state legislatures, because as we all know, the language of lawmakers is votes, right? That's what gets them off their butts um, and gets them to do their jobs to represent us the way that we see fit uh, when their job is in jeopardy. But I think the, the long-term ask that I have is, um, you know, I, I want especially my white friends and my white colleagues to start having those really uncomfortable conversations with friends um, and with leaders of the Black community that, that they're... Uh, that they have access to, right? Um, have conversations, ask questions, and then don't speak, right? Um, listen to those who are directly impacted. I think that is uh, one of the most important things that you can do. You know, Sean and I had a conversation last night, and we've had conversations before about, you know, what what can you do to help us move forward um, when it comes to this issue, and I've had tons of friends ask me that. And one of the things I say is, you know, just ask questions and listen. Um, because so many times we enter spaces of power where um, those who are neglected, communities of color, impoverished folks, immigrants, um, they don't get the platform to, to tell their story. They don't get the platform to speak their piece. And that's why we're still in the situation that we are today. Um, you know, one of my mentors, Glenn Martin, he's um, a criminal justice reform advocate um, and, and one of the, the leading voices in my field. Uh, he always says that those who are closest to the problem are closest to the solution, but they're furthest away from the power. And the reason why they're furthest away from the power is because in this country, those who have money, those who are men, and those who are white are those who have always been closest to the power. And when we have a conversation about something as serious as lynching, they're still the ones who are speaking. 
And so if you find that you are not the one directly impacted, if you are not a man or woman of color when it comes to this topic, really all I ask you to do is listen. And if you are listening and listening intently, you will know what action step you're supposed to take. Um, so, so that's my ask. Well said. Listen, thanks both of you for coming on. Thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of The Zag. We'll have future parts on this conversation as we get closer to uh, court dates and have more information uh, and current events that are happening related to it. Thanks so much for tuning in. You'll get all your Zags at the usual places you usually find your podcast, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Spread the word, tell your friends, and until next time, we'll catch you soon.